good. That sounds better. Perfect. Can leave myself there. Grand. I've given Nathan too many jobs this morning, so I've also always doing this. So see if that works or not. Ah, we'll just make it up as you go. I might be switched off. Hold on. There we go. There we go. Perfect. Right. Um, that was a perfect way to frame what we're going to look at this morning. I think um, I wasn't aware necessarily where David would go with worship, but that simplicity of the uh, gospel message is sort of the perfect framing for everything else that we'll hopefully bring out of the passage. And just something that uh, I was just thinking about while we were singing, and obviously some of you have seen this week that uh, the sort of famous great apologist Tim Keller died in the week. And it was like, it might have been somebody from here shared a quote that really struck us in the week. And I think it was just reminders of the simplicity of the gospel message that, um, it was, this is a paraphrase, but he said something along the lines of, you know, when we come to the gospel, what we find is we're so much more sinful and so much more in need of grace than we could possibly have imagined. And God is so much more loving and merciful than we could possibly have imagined. And I thought that's such a great frame for coming to this passage. I was thinking mainly this morning about what we learned in the first seven verses of Acts 19 about baptism. Um, and a poignant time to do so as we prepare for baptisms uh, in the church, as a church in late June. But we'll ground ourselves first before we study it. I always find it helpful to review a little bit of what has happened recently and the events running up to this moment and the place that we find ourselves. So you might remember back in Acts 17 in Thessalonica, we saw once again the vast spread of responses to the gospel message. To summarize what's been happening across the ancient world in this moment, the Jews, you might remember in verse 6, cried out against the men who they said have turned the world upside down. Uh, an amazing complaint to get against you. Um, of course, the only believers, they weren't doing this in their own strength. They would have been there. It would have been impossible to do so. The explosion of this good news about Jesus' death and resurrection uh, and the good news about repentance, forgiveness, and eternal life in him was and still is powered by the work of the Holy Spirit. However, the speed of the spread that the world would appear to be turning upside down almost overnight tells us that there clearly couldn't have been any great refutation of what they were sharing at the time. When we look back in history, we see the records that there was riots and persecution and a lot of dismay and upset among the, the Romans and the Jews, but it lacks any real refutation of the historical truth that Jesus was risen from the dead. And so what we see is that everywhere Paul and Silas go, this, on this second missionary journey and into the third, every city seems to be turned upside down by the power of the message. There continues to be all sorts of reactions in each of the different places, all mixed together in a big sort of uh, bubbling culture pot, to put it one way. How true of the gospel message to this day. So a recap, we've seen riots in Thessalonica, we've seen diligent studiers in Berea, we've seen philosophical debates in Athens, and a mixed bag really in Corinth. Some people understand, understood a lot and repented. Some people understood a lot and rejected. Some people knew very little and were brought to faith by the power of the Spirit. Others knew very little and also cared very little. And it's just like today of that. And in our passage, we're going to come across some people who know something and believe what they know, but God is preparing them for so much more. Just to very briefly, last time we also saw a wonderful example in Apollos. This gifted man, a fervent teacher even, who was humble enough to lay aside his pride and be taught uh, the scriptures with more fullness than he'd understood before. And so our group today, I think, is similarly humble in their understanding, and we'll see how he ties in here as well. So let's turn to the passage in Acts 19 and see what we can learn from it. Acts 19, 1-7 says this. 
While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Let's pray and we'll see how that speaks this morning. Lord God, I thank you just for the way that you've spoken certainly to myself through this text, deep in my understanding of something so precious to us in baptism. And I pray that what is said through these scriptures this morning might be clear, might be truthful, and that you might change and shape our lives through it, Lord. Change the way we think. Help us to think biblically about all of these things. I pray, Lord, that you'd uh, just open our hearts and help us to understand the great mysteries, Lord, of the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, something I think is important to say about this message before we kind of dig into three main points this morning. It is a very short passage, and a lot happens in these few verses. And something that sort of challenged me is how important it is when we come to the Scripture to do sound exegesis with this and understanding what that is. So exegesis is allowing the Scripture to speak for itself and to shape us as opposed to trying to look for what we think it should say and trying to find ideas that we would like to find in there, which is what we'd call eisegesis. So to do good exegesis, like the Berean church, about our beliefs, when it'd be humble and cross-reference with other places that we find in Scripture. To test what happens here with the teaching of the full Bible and do the best that we can to get to the truth. Because if you grab some of these verses in isolation on their own, you could spin out doctrines that might contradict Scripture elsewhere. And baptism remains to this day a key distinction between different denominations. What we'll see is some people say that baptism itself saves. Other people perform infant baptisms in the belief that bringing the child into the family of God is done through baptism. Here in this church, we preach believer's baptism. So we proclaim that baptism is a command of Jesus for the believer. It's a public declaration that a person has already repented of sin, trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, and is determined to follow him. And it's a true privilege and spiritual blessing for anyone to follow Jesus' example in the waters of baptism and not an insignificant decision by any means. So I hope that this morning we'll do good exegesis, let the text speak for itself and explain why we believe what we believe here and establish the position of the apostles. So I'd like to look at three things. Firstly, the baptism of John. What did these people know when Paul arrived? What did they get right? Secondly, the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is the core of the passage. What does it mean and perhaps what does it not mean for us? And then thirdly, we look at the authority of the apostles. What does Paul explain and what does he show by the laying on of hands at the end of these verses? So let's begin with the baptism of John. Baptism of John. As a reminder of where we're at and to get a picture of Ephesus, let's just quickly recap. And I've got the map there, which may or may not be clear. <clears throat> so, yeah. In Acts 18, 19 to 21, Paul's wrapping up his second missionary journey and he stops off in Ephesus for the first time. And we're told that he reasoned with the Jews and there must have been some success to what he's doing because they asked him in verse 20 to stay a bit longer with them. But Paul can't do that just yet. He's headed to Jerusalem to keep a feast. 
So for purposes God has prepared, but perhaps we don't know, the church in Ephesus is almost on pause for this moment in time. A smattering of people have met Paul and have heard about Jesus, but nothing concrete has taken root yet as a church. And Paul told them that God willing, he would return. And God is willing, because after setting off in verse 23 on his third missionary journey, Paul finds himself back in Ephesus again at the beginning of our passage. And a little bit like Corinth, Ephesus was absolutely enormous, one of the most important cities in the world at its time, and its ruins are still visited today. And at this time, it was Greek, but it falls in what we call modern-day Turkey on its west coast. And historians think there might have been as many as 250,000 residents, quarter of a million. A handy spot, it had coastal trade and ports. So it was a commercial hub and full of people passing through to go all over the world. It's obviously a very strategic place as well for hearing and sharing the gospel message. However, it's also a city that prided itself on pagan worship and temples. The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And the people there were devoted to the goddess Artemis, her statues, her festivals, ritual prostitution that took place for her in the temple as well. So it's not an easy place to be either, as we'll see more of in the coming weeks. This location would eventually become the very important church that Paul writes to in Ephesians with all the glorious richness that we get in that letter. But enough about Ephesus now. <clears throat> right now, it's the beginnings of the gospel music. Uh, music? Is this a movement in a dark place? Oh, where I come from. Um, when Paul arrives, he meets what we might expect there. There isn't a rooted church yet, but there are some groups of people here who know something. And that makes a lot of sense because Ephesus would be a great idea a great place to exchange ideas and learn uh, what's been going on all over the world. And as we see in our passage, when Paul gets here, he comes across some disciples, we're told, to quote the passage. And what happens next in conversation is very strange. See, Paul meets these people who must say some of the right things. And without getting a lot of detail in the passage, we know they must know something about the truth since the word disciples is used to describe them. They must be following something that's true. But something prompts Paul to hesitate for a second. We don't have anywhere else in Scripture that indicates Paul went around asking people the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is a unique occasion. So the people he's speaking to are obviously eager learners. They want to follow the truth and they profess to believe, but they're missing something. I think a good possible explanation for where they're at is actually found just prior to our passage with Apollos, as we saw here in chapter, uh, chapter 18 last week. Apollos was a man clearly gifted by God. We're told he was mighty in the scriptures, and he'd been going around teaching accurately the scriptures. And he's been to Ephesus, as we saw last uh, time in chapter 18, verse 24, and preached boldly in the synagogue, though, we're told, he only knew the baptism of John. So while we saw last week that Apollos was shown the full truth of God and carried on his ministry with great accuracy, we might be seeing some of his previous listeners here in Ephesus who, like him, understand many things accurately. They are disciples of the truth. However, they must be missing something. So I don't know for sure the ins and outs of what they do know and don't know because we're not told, but a few possibilities. They might, uh, understand the f they might not yet sorry, understand the fullness of Jesus' finished work. It could be that they followed some of Jesus' teachings without knowing exactly what Jesus won for them with his death and resurrection. Perhaps they didn't understand yet that Jesus was God himself, the God-man. They could have been following his teaching without a solid knowledge of just who they were following. It's possible they didn't really know anything about Jesus at all. 
They could have been disciples following the teaching of John the Baptist without having heard about the day that John the Baptist met the Lord Jesus. As I say, we're not told what their articles of faith would be and or anything else, and it's clear that we don't need to know. But one thing we do know for certain is that they lacked an awareness of the triune God of Scripture. That is definitely missing because they do not know the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers, and that sets alarm bells ringing for Paul. In John 14, 15 to 17, this is what Jesus promised. John 14, 15 to 17. He says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. So this is the person of the Trinity that these people in Ephesus have no knowledge of at this moment in time. It's a time when the message of Jesus is getting around, but as of yet, the gospel writers haven't written everything down, the testimony for everyone to have in its fullness. So Paul knew this promise of the Spirit, but these believers did not. Something to be thankful for today then, you have all of God's word to call on to make your informed decisions. These disciples didn't have everything at the time. Paul doesn't berate them for it, notice when he turns up. He checks what they know now. He explains what they need to know, and he must have been thrilled to baptize them in the name of Jesus. Paul knows that those who believe receive the Holy Spirit and are baptized in the name of the Lord. And that was what, exactly what happened to Cornelius' family back in Acts 10. So for these folks to know nothing of the Spirit, told Paul, they needed to understand the full gospel message. And something that struck me as beautiful in this was that back in Acts 18, when the Lord spoke to Paul by a vision in verses 9 to 10, he told Paul to keep going, to be bold in Corinth because I have many people in this city. That was God's promise back in Corinth, and I think it's true here in Ephesus as well. These are people who God is preparing. They're called disciples. They're called followers. And in many different ways, in different times, God has spoken in history They've been prepared already through the prophets. They've been prepared through John the Baptist. They've been prepared through his words in the Old Testament. He's given them faith to believe. And Paul seems to be coming here. He's sent to complete the puzzle for them. Now, just for us to understand the baptism of John, which they've already had, let's outline what the difference is here with what Paul brings. So you may remember John the Baptist, cousin of the Lord Jesus. He'd been the forerunner to Jesus' ministry. He was out there in the wilderness preaching repentance, turning from sin. He declared that his purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord. Someone was coming after him whose sandals he was unworthy to untie. And anyone who was following John the Baptist's message, like these men, would have been taught the following. Firstly, being baptized was a picture of cleansing and purification. And the Jews did this ritually anyway. It was an important part of their worship to cleanse themselves. Secondly, John's baptism went deeper than surface-level cleaning. He called people to repentance, the confession of sin, and a commitment to turn back to the living God. And thirdly, John called people not only to turn to the living God, but to wait imminently for the coming of the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. So these roughly 12 men in Ephesus were in that teaching. They'd been baptized in it. They could have been out in Judea in the past to receive it from John. They might have been baptized by a disciple of John or maybe even Apollos delivered this teaching to them with his, uh, before his own eyes were open to the full way of God. But the main point is John's baptism pointed the way to Jesus, but Jesus himself had now finished the work 
that had been revealed. So thank God for his sovereignty in this period of time. Clearly he's preparing these people for the fullness. And what a joy it must have been for them to listen to Paul with humble hearts, ready to know the one that John called them to listen to. And that leads us perfectly to explore the second point this morning, which is the baptism that Paul preaches, which is baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. I think this is the crux of what we need to understand in the passage. Because you can say with your lips that you follow Jesus and you can know lots about the Bible. You can meet with other people who believe. You can go through the motions of Christian living. You can even meet and spend time with the Apostle Paul, it seems. But if you haven't believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not yet saved. And I hope that's something to hold on to, if nothing else, this morning. A vague understanding of what the Bible teaches will not help us. What really matters in life is a knowledge of who Jesus is and how in him we can have salvation. <clears throat> These men almost had like a half-baked message, and it was almost as if, and I tried to picture it in a certain way, it's like somebody had brought them an appetizer for a meal and then not provided them with the main course. Try to imagine for a moment. They've just had this sort of starter, but they're not satisfied yet. The appetizer was necessary to make them desire the main course. All of us need to hear the message of John the Baptist preached first, you are spiritually unclean, John the Baptist said. You are not holy as God is, and it's a hard message for us to hear. Because of your sinful nation, nature, sorry, the choices that poured out of that sinful nature in your life and mine means that we've wandered the wilderness of this life in filthy rags. We need to repent and need to commit ourselves to throwing off that sin, the addictions, the selfishness, lies, lust, hatred, greed, all of it. It's a heavy burden, and the Bible paints a picture that it's a stain on your soul. And it doesn't sound like much of an appetizer, does it? But like an appetizer, John's message in baptism whet the appetite for a much greater to come. This message, the message of John, is hard to hear, and it was hard to hear at the time. But the promise of the Messiah, the promised one coming, was enough to set people up to find true fulfillment in Jesus these disciples that we've met here in Ephesus, they were on the journey and God was leading them to full truth. And receiving Jesus is the rest of the message they were waiting for, but didn't yet have. In the time between John the Baptist's ministry and the day Paul arrives in Ephesus, Jesus has established his kingdom. He's lived the perfect sinless life that John the Baptist couldn't, that the Ephesians and Paul and you and I couldn't. He's carried all that sin on his shoulders to the cross and he's been raised from the dead to reign forever. And so in Jesus, they could know payment for that sin. In Jesus, they could know a release of that heavy burden. In Jesus, they could hide in him so that their filthy rags would never be seen again before a holy God. In Jesus, as we've sang this morning, they could be washed in his blood, washed clean of the stains of everything that they now regretted and repented of. And in Jesus, they could know the Holy Spirit, a seal and a guarantee that they belong to him. That's fulfillment. How much better than the appetizer is that to hear? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think they had that bit down. We all require repentance and a desire to be cleansed from our sin and shame. And these people in Ephesus, they got that. But Romans 3.24 says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And that's the preaching of Paul as he comes to them. You're not wrong. He says, now know the free gift of God's grace. Now know the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Know the spirit as a guarantee of eternal life. And I don't know exactly how much Paul said, but in our passage in verses 
4 to 5, it's summarized like this. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Such a simple pattern, isn't it? Whenever we see that pattern, it should thrill our hearts, and we still see it today. We see it in this church, the pattern that God's given us. Repentance, then belief in the Lord Jesus, and then baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is what we believe about baptism. In the New Testament, believers are constantly baptized on their profession of faith. Back in Acts 10, 47, you might remember, Peter asks if anyone can forbid those who've confessed Christ and received the Spirit from being baptized. And notice in that example that believers have received the Spirit before baptism. It's precisely because of this confirmation that Peter knows baptism is also for these Gentiles like you and me. In Acts 16, Lydia is baptized after the Lord opens her heart to respond to the message. Further in Acts 16, 30 to 34, the jailer asks, what must he do to be saved? And he's told, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Same pattern there. He and all his household believe and then they're baptized. It's consistent. It's the shared approach of the apostles in the early church. But most importantly, it's the command that we're given by Jesus himself. Go and make all sorry, disciples of all nations. Do that first baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's precisely because Paul knows that command of Jesus that he thinks, hold on a minute, when he hears that they have no concept of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And so baptism itself then is the public proclamation of those steps being taken. In that sense, it's quite simple. We stand publicly before the world and say, I've repented of my sin, I've trusted in a risen Savior who paid for it all, and now I'm following him starting today with his command to be baptized. But unfortunately, over many centuries, the church around the world has deviated from this pattern in different ways. The primary example of that would be the belief that baptism in itself is necessary for salvation. That is to say that some people believe that it is through the action of being baptized that we're regenerated and that the person is cleansed from sin. Lots of Bible verses tie the work of Jesus in salvation and baptism closely together. To quote just a couple, Mark 16, 16 says this, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Acts 2.38 says, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe in this church holds that baptism itself does not save. However, we also have to take a balanced view and see the constant emphasis that the scriptures place on baptism. Why are they so closely linked together? Well, Paul really expounds the meaning of baptism in Romans 6 for us. He shows us the deeper meaning of the picture. He shows us how much richer the picture is than just being washed clean in water. And he shows us how baptism lines up with Jesus' death and resurrection. And I'm going to read Romans 6, 3 to 4, which I'll put up there in case you don't have a Bible in front of you. So it says this, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I see the rich picture of baptism coming out there. 
We aren't physically buried like Jesus was in baptism. But as we go down into the water, we proclaim his burial and the put into death of our old sinful self. We come out of the waters that just as Jesus was raised, we too declare new life in him. And the whole passage in Romans 6 extends that, but it culminates in verse 11, which says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So baptism is a precious picture of this for us. If you died to sin and if you were made alive in Christ, go and declare it in baptism. And to avoid limiting the importance of baptism to just the picture, we also declare there is a real spiritual blessing through baptism. Baptism provides assurance to the confessing believer that this work of salvation has taken place in their life. It's like a spiritual marker that a new birth in Christ has happened and it's been proclaimed. And as an act of obedience to Jesus, it thrills the heart as we go into the water as well. I'm sure all of those who've been baptized will testify with me that the time of their baptism was one of the most blessed, most fulfilling spiritual experiences of their life. It's a time of joy and renewal and excitement. And you can look back on it and always think of that spiritual mark and how much of a blessing it was. So it's essential for the believer to be baptized as an act of obedience to Jesus. In the time of the apostles, being acknowledged to have the Holy Spirit and being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was the sign, almost like stamping a seal on your life to say that this person has professed faith in Jesus alone and been welcomed into the church. And so it is for us today. And on the flip side, a person who professed Jesus but refused to publicly declare it in baptism would be in disobedience to Jesus. And the clearest teaching of Jesus is that we'd be known by our fruits. That is to say, if we say we believe in Jesus and we have the Spirit, we will be changed over time. We will obey his voice, we will love him, and we will want to follow him. So a person refusing any of his commands would be lacking the fruit that comes from genuine faith. So I'm going to conclude this second point by saying we have to be careful not to fall into two different pitfalls. The first one is don't equate being baptized as the same thing as being saved. Baptism is a wonderful blessing and it's a sign to all the world that Jesus has cleansed us by his own blood. A sign that we've been buried with sin and raised to new life in Jesus. Titus 3, 5 talks about being washed. It says this, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And think about those verses. He didn't save us because of any righteous things that we have done. And so if we were saved by baptism itself, that would be on us. You would get some credit for that. But no, it says he saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The picture it's given us is of the Father pouring out the Spirit like water through the Son, Jesus Christ. So it's God working perfectly in his triune nature to save us. He does the work, not the waters themselves. The second pitfall not to fall into, I think, is to go too far the opposite direction and say that baptism is not important. And I hope that just the words of Jesus that we've seen are enough to prove the point. Baptism is not a suggestion, but a command of Jesus. Believers confess faith first, and then they are baptized. It declares God's saving work in your life. There's believers of Jesus in all different ages of the church who, for one reason or another, were unable to be baptized. And if you look into history, some were even martyred before they had the chance. 
and I'm certain we'll meet them in heaven. But all those who could be baptized in scripture were baptized. They publicly declared faith and they were baptized. And so I praise God for the unbaptized thief on the cross who cried out to Jesus with his dying breath and was promised paradise. I'm sure there's many people since then who've tasted salvation before they enjoyed the privilege of baptism. But if you are here this morning and you'd like to know more, if you'd like to be baptized or yet to cry out to Jesus for salvation at all, please come and speak about it. And there'd be no greater joy than to share some of these truths with you. Well, finally, and very briefly, before we kind of draw as much application as we can out, I think it's important to notice what happens in verse 6 because it's unusual. So I've titled this point, The Authority of the Apostles, um, because I think it's something of that is revealed here. This is the third point, The Authority of the Apostles. This passage in Acts 19 is a unique case. And um, as I've extensively described there, a pattern that salvation comes through faith, God sends his spirit, and then believers are baptized. But here in verse 6, it suggests that after baptism, and specifically when Paul lays his hands on these believers, they receive the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, they speak in tongues and prophesy. Well, why is that? It's very easy to be confused. This is different to all the other examples that we've studied uh, so far. And I think that's why we've got to be careful to look at the full biblical picture rather than try to spin out a doctrine from just one isolated text. Like every other example in Acts 19, these people hear the gospel message from Paul and they believe before they're baptized, which is great because that links up neatly with everything else that we see in Scripture. But it is unlike Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching when the Spirit is poured out at the hearing of the word. So it stands to reason that we should not say that the Spirit must come after, with the laying on of hands. That's not a precedent that's set in the rest of Scripture, so we shouldn't hold that as doctrine. I think there's a couple of reasons why in Acts 19 we see this order of events. So I'll share my thoughts, and you're welcome to think about it and share your thoughts with me. Firstly, these people didn't know up until this moment that the Spirit of God existed. He'd not been revealed to them. So this was a specific error in their thinking, and Paul is specifically sent to correct it. God is going to make a special and unique example of his spirit to reveal the truth to them. Through the laying on of Paul's hands, God was going to come in power in their lives and he was going to make it abundantly clear that the message Paul brought was from the living God because the apostles taught with authority. So lots of commentators feel that this event takes place to demonstrate Paul's apostolic authority. He's not just another messenger with a little bit more information that they might get a little bit more in like a five-course meal or something like that. No, the, when Paul comes, he brings news of the finished work of God, the fulfillment of the scriptures in Jesus. The apostles in the New Testament are given a different kind of authority, being those who met the risen Christ and were set apart accurately to teach the truth. They set the parameters in the New Testament of good teaching and practice. And it was important that God made clear to his people uh, early on that he affirmed their work. And so as Paul lays hands on them, God affirms that this profession of faith and this baptism is of the living gods. And the Lord accompanies the work of the apostles with the signs and wonders wherever they go. And here, the Holy Spirit comes in power to authenticate the message. The Spirit dwells in every believer, but also at special moments can be poured out afresh to testify the message of God. 
Another reason this is significant in Ephesus is that by experiencing the same spirit and the same miracles as those back in Jerusalem at Pentecost, God also demonstrates the unity of the global church. They're being shown you are all one in Christ Jesus, no matter where you are in the world. And hopefully a few thoughts that are helpful for the discussion. As to conclude, the question I'd like to ask really is where are you uh, this morning? Where are you now? As we conclude this message to home back in of the core and remind ourselves of the command of Jesus, we should all find ourselves somewhere on this journey. I'm going to look into, well, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, to ground yourself and be sure to of where you stand, because these are the words of Jesus himself, our highest authority, who gave these words. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, there are three steps in what Jesus says there, a bit of a simple pattern as such laid out for believers to follow. So I've put them in red, amber, and green. Hopefully that's legible on screen. First in the pattern is go and make disciples of all nations. First, go and share the gospel message. First, make disciples, proclaim Jesus, and as people respond, make disciples of them so that they too may desire to follow Jesus. So what about you? There'll be some people here today who are yet to take the first step and commit to follow Jesus. If that is yourself this morning and you don't know that salvation, then please hear his words. Repent and turn to him today in faith. That's the first call. The second call is baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those who hear and accept the gospel message are baptized into the family of God. This is no small thing as we've seen. Jesus commanded it for all who proclaim Jesus. It's not just a nice ceremony, but the natural outworking of faith for disciples. So be baptized into adoption by the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. What a blessing to be given that assurance in our lives and a sign that marks that you belong to God. So what about you this morning? We're excited to baptize a number of believers soon. And just prayerfully consider if you're a follower of Jesus where you stand, if you know and can declare his death and resurrection, whether you ought to also take the second step that Jesus commanded. Thirdly, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And this is really where the hard work should start. Unless you have the desire to live this out and obey the Lord Jesus, then baptism isn't for you yet. All three of these things come together in Jesus' instructions. The apostles went out and did all three. Once believers were saved and baptized, then they were called to live out their faith. Now follow Jesus every day. Be diligent, study, learn, be changed by the words that Jesus taught. And as we've seen, the apostles had this special role. They gave the teaching of Jesus' words. And we have those teachings in Acts, in the letters, in the Gospels. But what about you this morning? Perhaps you've done steps one and step two. And now you need to be reminded of how great a salvation that you have. You're now saved, so live it out as Jesus commands. And as it pertains to this message this morning, just a specific challenge that hopefully will bring us um, a, a thought before we close. We ought to be practical and committed in doing this for one another, in teaching and obeying everything that Jesus said. Something that was discussed at the AGM was the idea of doing one-to-one -one meetings for one another and small group discipling. 
And I guess a lot of us felt that it was something that as a church we could develop and live out this command from Jesus. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And so I have to ask the question, do I do that well? Do we do that well? Do you do that well? Do we do it outside of Sundays in the week? We know that there's folks who quietly do this and it's wonderful to know that that's going on. But praise God for those things. But we'd love to see more mature believers being matched to Christians who are eager to learn. And so if you'd like to follow up on that challenge and be committed to discipling others or being discipled, then please, please, please do come and see one of the elders and discuss it. Let's see Bible studies and prayer meetings and um, you know, looking out for one another, encouraging one another, challenging each other one in the week to become part of the fabric of the church, whether it's to meet in homes, whether it's out on walks, to go out for coffees, just sharing life together and being these disciples. We have to start somewhere with willing servants being ready to step up and make it happen. And so just be challenged to think about what you currently offer and what you could offer um, to a fellow believer. Just as we finish, later on in life, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, as we know. And this is just something he says in Ephesians 1, 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Isn't that amazing? Paul knew the Ephesian church so well. And on his earlier visit, he taught them about the Holy Spirit, who they had no knowledge of at all. He laid on hands and they received the Holy Spirit. And later, as we say in Ephesians, he continued to pray for them that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know him better. Just like our passage today, Paul's prayer remained that God's people would always be seeking to know more accurately who he is and what he's done for us. And so hopefully it's an encouragement really as we finish to pray that you would also know him better. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We declare this morning that you are the triune God of Scripture, that you reveal yourself in our lives in salvation as the Father reveals the Son to us, draws us to him, and pours out the Spirit as a guarantee and a seal that we are eternally yours, that we have an eternal hope and a future. I thank you, Lord, for that wonderful news, Lord, that we've heard and many of us have received. I pray, Lord, anyone who hasn't yet experienced the power of the Spirit in their life, revealing these things to them, would come to the Lord Jesus this morning, would bow the knee and declare you as Lord and Saviour. Lord, I pray for those who are perhaps preparing for baptism at the moment or are keen or eager to understand more about it. I pray, Lord, that you'd strengthen them in their faith and their young faith, Lord, that they might know the power of the Spirit in their lives and that you'd continue to lead them in truth. But Lord, for the rest of us who maybe feel as we look at it that it's easy to tick the boxes, we've confessed faith and we've been baptised, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see and understand how where the hard work starts for us, to be prepared to be discipled, to disciple one another, to commit ourselves in the week, to commit ourselves in our daily lives, to search in through the scriptures, to be diligent studiers. pray that you'd continue to reveal yourself more to us by your spirit, that you'd help us to be reminded of the spiritual blessings we enjoy and the great faith, Lord, the great mysteries that we've had revealed to us. Help us to celebrate in them, to meet the needs of one another every day. So stir us up, I pray, Lord, and uh, challenge us as we go from this place to think about the example that's set by Paul as he prayed for the Ephesian church that they would know him better. Pray these things in Jesus' name.